I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. First, let's talk about the letter to the Ephesians. This epistle was probably written around 63 AD while Paul was in prison in Rome. Ephesus was far away from Jerusalem, 700 miles or so by boat over treacherous waters. Paul had previously visited there on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, then again on his third missionary journey in Acts chapters 19, uh, 8 through 10, and chapter 20, verse 31. There he remained for two years preaching in the synagogue, according to Acts 19, verses 8 and 10, in the school of Tyrannus, according to Acts 19, 9, and in private houses, according to Acts 20, 20. The Ephesians church consisted of Gentile believers as seen in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 and Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. So we begin Ephesians with your standard Pauline introduction. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these are the typical points that we see Paul emphasize at the beginning of his epistles. He first of all establishes his apostleship as coming from Jesus Christ by the will of God. If you want to know more about that, look at the uh, notes regarding Paul's apostleship in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He then directs this letter to the saints in Ephesus, also called faithful. The conjunction and is translated from the Greek conjunction chi, which can also be translated also or even. Therefore, the saints and the faithful are references to the same group of people. The noun saints and the verb sanctify are derived from the very same Greek root word. The Greek verb for sanctify is hagiadzo, and that means to dedicate or set apart. The Greek noun form of that root is hagias, which is often translated saints when used as a noun. In other words, a believer is set apart for an eternity in heaven as a saint of God. Then Paul extends grace and peace to his audience, acknowledging that both of these come from God and from Jesus Christ. Grace comes from the Greek word charis, which means unmerited favor. If you'd like to know more about the New Testament usages of grace and peace, then look at the notes on Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Then Paul, beginning in verse 3, chapter 1, talks about our Christian heritage. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made known to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So Paul kicks this letter off by establishing who we are and how we got here. And he does it in one very, very, very long Greek sentence that starts in verse 3 and actually in Greek doesn't end until the completion of verse 14. Now let's look at the components of this long Greek sentence that extends from verse 3 to 14. First of all, we're blessed. It's interesting that Paul uses a Greek root, the Greek root eulog. It's used three times in this sentence, first as an adjective, eulogetos, then as a verb, eulogesos, and finally as a noun, eulogia. Because God is blessed, to be praised or commended, those in Christ are also blessed, spiritually consecrated for heavenly purposes. Then we see that we're chosen in him since before the foundation of the world, according to verse 4. God has always known who would receive Jesus as Savior, and we'll give that some more attention in just a few moments. Then we see that we should be holy and without blame before him in love in verse 4. Now, does this phrase speak of our conduct before the world, or does it speak of our position in Christ before God? Well, of course, God desires that we should live our lives before the world in a holy fashion and without blame, but this verse appears to be referencing our set-apart position before God as a result of being chosen. Because Jesus Christ paid our sin debt, as believers we are before God, holy and without blame. On the other hand, Peter uses the same adjective holy, the Greek word hagios, which means set apart. He uses it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, there to indicate a believer's responsibility to set a Christ-like example before the world. Context only, it's all we have to make a differentiation of intent with regard to this word. Then we see in verse 5 that we are predestined. Predestined to what? Well, it says there in that verse, Adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Why is that? Well, it says also in verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. And again, we'll talk about this more in a few moments. In verse 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This phrase further explains the predestined of verses 5 and 6. And it begins in the Greek accusative case, thus providing the object for the end of verse 6. In other words, we are predestined because it is his will for which he is to be praised because of his grace, causing him to do so. Grace is the Greek word charis, which means unmerited favor. And again, if you want to know more about um, grace, then look at the important salvation words article that's uh, attached to the commentary on Romans chapter 5. So here's the result by which he made us accepted in the beloved, verse 6. This phrase means that we are members of God's family, the body of Christ. Verse 7 then says, In him we have redemption through his blood. 
This refers to the mention of Jesus Christ in verse 5. Our redemption is through Jesus Christ. The Greek word for redemption here is paloutrosis. In secular Greek writings, the word was used to denote a ransom payment. It is quite appropriate, then, that this word is used ten times in the New Testament to specify the means by which God allows us to go to heaven. It's through a redemptive process. We were lost, but by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, God redeemed us. Then we see the phrase in verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. This phrase is included to specifically define redemption through his blood. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Then we see also in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. As I keep saying, grace comes from the Greek word charis, which means unmerited favor. In other words, a gift. No works for salvation. It is a gift. Then more about the grace of verse 7, as Paul adds, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He says that in verse 8. The grace by which we were saved abounded toward us at salvation, resulting in wisdom and prudence. Two words are used here, meaning almost the same thing. The Greek word Sophia, translated wisdom, can be understood in this context as knowing the will of God. The Greek word phronesis, translated prudent, can be understood as the ability to take the wisdom from God and correctly determine how best to apply it. Paul wants us to understand that through grace, we have both. Wisdom and prudence. Now let's talk about the results of this wisdom and prudence of verse 7 when Paul says in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will. A mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion, and here's what it means in the New Testament, that which cannot be known naturally. In a general sense, the word means that which was hidden previously. In either sense, the Spirit provided wisdom and prudence of verse 7 that reveals to believers the mystery of his will. By the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, not actually mentioned until verse 13, we know, or at least we should know, God's will. So why are believers now given the opportunity to have previously hidden mysteries revealed? Well, it says, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, verse 9. It was God's will to provide it to us. It's just that simple. Then we read in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now here's the mystery of verse 9 defined. Dispensation, oikonomia, means management. That's the Greek word. Of the fullness of times. And that's what's clear in this verse. That dispensation means management of the fullness of times, and that's what Paul is referencing in this verse right here. The Greek neuter definite article used twice is appropriately translated things, or more specifically, the things in heaven and the things on earth. Now, these things are only gathered together in one, beginning with the millennium, when everything is under Christ's rule. No other period of time previous to the millennium meets this criteria. Paul gives some extra detail on this subject in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. Then in verse 11, we have this phrase, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Believers are in the millennium plan, and thereafter, by the way, as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and that's according to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. 
And how did we come to be part of the millennium proposition anyway? Well, it says in verse 11, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's another feature included with predestination, which we'll talk about, I keep telling you, in just a few moments. Now we have in verse 12 a small Jew-Gentile distinction that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's in verse 12. Now a couple of things here, Greek things. First, the usage of the Greek plural personal pronoun translated we combined with the Greek plural definite article and verb translated who first trusted, that undoubtedly refers to the Jews rather than to only Paul's personal salvation. Ephesian Gentiles show up in the next verse when it says in verse 13, in whom you also trusted. Now notice in the New King James that trusted there is italicized. In the Greek text, the thought's there, but the word isn't. Here we have a reference to the salvation of Ephesian Gentiles. And then we have the phrase in verse 13, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Word of truth, by the way, equals gospel of your salvation. And then in verse 13, in whom also having believed. The Greek word for believed is pestuo. It means to exercise faith in. It's in the Greek aorist tense there, indicating a point in time, because they believed at a point in time in other words, they exercised faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And at that point in time, when they did that, they were saved. Then in verse 13, the result of having believed is seen in this phrase, when it says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, I've written an article entitled, The Earnest of the Spirit. The King James Version uses earnest instead of the word guarantee. It's uh, in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can find it in the topic section. The fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit guarantees that our eternal security rests in Christ. It doesn't rest in our own abilities. And then we see in verse 14, it says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? Our inheritance is secured by a deposit, a guarantee, or an earnest payment until the actual physical redemption, in other words, going to heaven, takes place. And again, you really should take a look at that article entitled The Earnest of the Spirit. And with that, we come to the end of a very long 12-verse Greek sentence. Now, what about election, foreknowledge, and predestination? I told you we'd talk about it. The following verses from Ephesians 1 have caused concern with some. Those verses are Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. So let's read them again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved." Now, some have used this passage of Scripture along with others to declare that man has no say whatsoever in his own salvation experience or in his own spiritual birth, the same thing. The fact is, God is omniscient. It's one of his attributes. He did know from the foundation of the world who would receive Jesus as his personal Savior and who would not. This foreknowledge has been misunderstood by many 
in light of the fact that man is not capable of comprehending how one might have foreknowledge without misusing it. I once heard the late evangelist B.R. Lakin say, as he was advancing in years, If I could know where I was going to die, I would just never go there. As I said, we can only imagine aggressively acting upon foreknowledge were we to have it, but not so with God. He knows, but He allows us to take our own course, nonetheless. However, the fact that He knows makes it appropriate for Paul to declare that those who are saved are predestined. So the fact that God knows does not alter the fact that He has still given man the choice to receive Jesus Christ as His personal Savior. Now, a fuller discussion, a much fuller discussion of foreknowledge, election, and predestination, uh, you can find that with my notes on Romans chapter 9. There's a link here on this page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or just go to the uh, Scripture lookup and find Romans chapter 9 and read everything that I know about foreknowledge, election, and predestination. And that brings us to verses 15 to 23, where we see the tools of a mature believer. Verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, these nine verses are packed full as well. In verses 15 and 16, Paul tells the Ephesians that after hearing of their faith, he's praying for them. Then we see another big, long Greek sentence in verses 17 to 23 that outlines the specifics of Paul's prayer for them. Well, let's take special notice of Paul's prayer for these Ephesians. He says in verse 17 that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, here we see that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. By the Holy Spirit, we acquire our knowledge of God. Likewise, John warned against false teachers spreading false doctrine and declared that the Holy Spirit should be our guide in 1 John 2.27. Then he says that they would fully understand what accompanies salvation in Jesus Christ in verse 18. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that we saw in verse 17. Believers have rights. Rights as heirs, thus the accompanying phrase regarding our inheritance as saints, meaning believers. And then in verse 19, that they would fully embrace the power of God available toward us who believe in verse 19, as I mentioned. So Paul's still talking about his prayer for them. If there's any question in anyone's mind about who Jesus Christ is, what he did and what he's doing now, Paul answers it in verses 20 to 23. He says in verse 20, God raised Jesus from the dead. He deals extensively with this reality in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 28. Then he says in verse 20 that Jesus is at God's right hand. Christ at God's right hand is based upon the prophetic Psalm 110. 
That's where verse 1 begins in Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This right hand reference is used by Paul a number of times in the New Testament. Look at my notes on Psalm 110 for more details on that. Then Paul says that Jesus is the ultimate authority in the universe according to verses 21 and 22. Also clearly stated in Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 where here's what those two verses say. For in him, being Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Then in verses 22 and 23 we see that Jesus is the head of the church, his body. This concept is also seen in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, where there it says, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Paul elaborates on Christ's relationship to the church later in this letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And then we come to the salvation by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, what was your spiritual condition before you got saved? Well, Paul says that you were dead in trespasses and sins. All of us were spiritually dead prior to salvation in Christ. We had no hope of heaven, no way to redeem ourselves from hell. You'll notice in the New King James that it says, He made alive, and that's italicized. That's to indicate that these words are not placed here in the Greek text, but they were added to complete a thought, a thought which is not really completed until we get down to verse 5. And about lifestyle before salvation, what about that? Well, verse 2 says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The phrase, course of this world, in other words, that which comes naturally to the unregenerate mind, that phrase is dictated by the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Let's be careful not to see demon or devil possession here. Satan is seen in this verse as orchestrating the course of this world. As a result, those who reject Christ are seen in verse 2 as those who embrace the course dictated by Satan. Paul says, in essence, the same thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, when he says, "...whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe." Verse 3 expands upon the godless lifestyle before salvation, calling it a lifestyle that fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
He even refers to the unregenerate as children of wrath. In other words, the wrath of God's judgment. Now, that's the bad news of verses 1 through 5. We turn the corner in verse 4 with God's mercy and then the good news that God has made us alive together with Christ in verse 5. Now, here it's a spiritual reference. It's not a physical reference. In this case, the spiritually dead are made spiritually alive. Notice Paul sneaks a preview into verse 5 when he says this, By grace you've been saved. That's fully developed in verses 8 through 10. Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we are made alive to live with Christ in heaven. And it's all done by grace through a faith relationship with God through Christ. Now, verses 6 and 7 give us the essence of our spiritual position in Christ. We're raised up with Christ in verse 6, already seated with Christ in heaven in verse 6 also. As such, we are in store for the manifestation of the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus in verse 7. Again, it should be emphasized that positionally the resurrection and seat are ours right now. Think about it. When the king is not actually seated on his throne, well, he's still the king. That's the idea here. As believers, we are resurrected, seated, and to be recipients of blessings through Christ Jesus, and that's because of our relationship with Christ. Verses 8 and 9 are popular verses because they state the simplicity of the salvation experience, 100% grace and 0% works. As a matter of fact, the phrase, and that not of yourselves, found in verse 8, means that we are unable, not at all able, to do anything to save ourselves whatsoever. Consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44. Here's what he said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So here it is. We are saved when we are drawn by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and subsequently accept the offer. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for renewing there means renovation. Lost people need a renovation that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.10 then adds the role of works, but not in the context of securing one's salvation. Works are what follow after salvation, as believers are indwelled at salvation, in other words, filled and led by the Holy Spirit. If you'd like more information on the filling and leading of the Holy Spirit, then look at my notes on Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Now, just in case a reader may be confused about what's involved in salvation in Christ, let's look closely at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. One is saved by grace. Saved means free from the wrath of God, and grace means unmerited favor. In other words, we don't deserve to be saved. Then the phrase through faith represents the process. The Greek word for faith is pistis and speaks to the act of exercising complete trust. Then the phrase, and not of yourselves, takes away any notion that one might have that somehow eternal life is deserved because it is not deserved. And then the phrase salvation is the free, here's the phrase, gift of God, and that's through the process of verse 8. Salvation is not of works, no one in heaven will ever be able to boast that they deserve to be there. So what about the works then, one might ask? Well, here they are in verse 10, but not for the purpose of acquiring salvation, 
The Holy Spirit-led course of the new believer is to live a life that's fruitful with good works. In other words, godly works. To avoid misunderstanding, it's a good idea to include verse 10 with each and every citation of verses 8 and 9. Now, that brings us to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And as we read here, and you'll see something interesting in verse 14, uh, let me point out that there was erected in Herod's temple a wall of partition past which Gentiles were not permitted to go. And uh, I have an article from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia where they've actually uncovered that and the inscription. And that inscription says, No man of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. And that undoubtedly is to what Paul refers in these verses as I begin reading now with verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, what did those first century Jews call the Gentiles? Well, there's your answer. They called them the uncircumcision. Ooh, that hurts. However, in Christ Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. It looks like the Gentiles catch a break. Previously, Gentiles had no interest in Israel whatsoever, no citizenship within Israel. The covenants of God had been made with Israel, and they excluded Gentiles, and therefore they were without hope and without God, according to verse 12. But having been that far away in the past, now the blood of Christ has brought Gentiles near, according to verse 13. As a matter of fact, he broke down the division between us, Jews versus Gentiles, by his death and resurrection, according to verse 14. Yeah, but the Jews were very proud of their law of Moses, and they took great pride in keeping that law. But look at verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So what did Christ do with the law of Moses when he died on the cross? Well, he abolished it. Afterward, even Gentiles, having been raised from childhood without knowing anything about the law of Moses, are equally as righteous before God as the Jews. Many Christians incorrectly adopt and hang on to the law of Moses, and especially they like the Ten Commandments as, as something that they are to integrate into their Christian walk after salvation. 
but that's not really true, not scripturally true. The law has been abolished by the death of Christ on the cross. And we find the same declaration clearly stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. And if you'd like to have a fuller discussion of the believer's responsibility with regard to the law of Moses, then take a look at the notes on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. Also, you're going to want to look at the declaration by the early church, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Verses 16 to 22 really drive this point home of the uniting of Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. Verse 16 says, Reconcile Jews and Gentiles with the animosity between them put away. In verse 17, we see that the same peace is preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, we see that the same Holy Spirit gives equal access to God to the Jews and Gentiles who trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. In verse 19, we see that while the Gentiles were strangers to God before, now they are fellow citizens with the saints. And in verse 20, the cornerstone reference there is based upon the prophetic Psalm 118.22. The inclusion of Gentiles is validated by the prophets and the apostles. And then in verses 21 and 22, we see that Jews and Gentiles together form the strong foundation for the working of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, the mystery of the gospel is revealed. Verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets." that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory." In verse 1, Paul makes an interesting statement. He's in jail because of his insistence on taking the gospel to the Gentiles. After all, his arrest in Acts chapter 21 came about because the Jews were infuriated with him. He had the audacity in their minds. He had the audacity to take their sacred religion and mix it in with a Gentile offering. Paul made a considerable sacrifice to preach the gospel to Gentiles. So exactly what was this new revelation that Paul was willing to even die for? Well, there it is in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That's the revelation that makes our salvation possible. 
But it's also the revelation that threatened the special place with God the Jews were so very proud of. The Jews and, well, and even many Jewish Christians in the first century disregarded the numerous Old Testament prophecies regarding the entrance of Gentiles into complete and equal communion with Jews. Look at my notes on Isaiah chapter 49 for a fuller discussion of that. This brings us to the discussion of a theological term known as dispensationalism. Bible students frequently ask one another, are you a dispensationalist? The term has been severely misused and taken out of context by many. Without dealing with that misuse, let me just point out that Paul declares himself to be a dispensationalist in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. In verse 3, Paul goes on to explain, and he says, By revelation he made known to me the mystery. Now remember, a mystery in this context is that which cannot be known by the natural mind, that which was previously hidden. We see in verse 5. But this mystery was supernaturally revealed to Paul through revelation directly from God. And what was this ministry? Well, again, there it is in verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So to summarize, God committed to Paul the dispensation of the grace of God which was given him by revelation. In other words, a direct word from God. This mystery, that which cannot be known by the natural mind, this mystery was revealed to Paul declaring salvation through the atonement of Christ on the cross to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul categorizes this revelation as a dispensation. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia, and it means administration or management. So the dispensation given to Paul was a new administration between God and man. Now, that's not to say that favor with God was not always a matter of faith. It was. And we see that all the way back to the clear statement of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, in reference to Abraham's relationship with God. That verse says, And he, being Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. However, the atonement of Jesus on the cross as our Redeemer causes Paul to categorize the period after the cross as a distinct dispensation. Incidentally, Paul indicates in verse 5 that he's not alone in this doctrinal coup when he says this, It has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Although he had doctrinal allies, Paul was the one in jail for spreading his doctrine of the Jew-Gentile equality as believers in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul's additional comments regarding this dispensation which had been committed to him in verse 7. He says, God directed him to this controversial ministry to the Gentiles. He, he says, became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Then in verse 8, he says, I don't deserve the honor, but I've been given the responsibility of preaching to the Gentiles. Then in verses 9 and 10, the church of God fulfills the long-hidden mystery of fellowship among Jews and Gentiles alike. While prophesied in the Old Testament that Jews and Gentiles would one day come together as one, Isaiah 49, Paul's the one to reveal that and that it's through the New Testament church. And then in verses 11 and 12, that was the eternal design for Jesus Christ all along. Now Paul expresses that we have boldness and access to God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul's writing this from jail, by the way, we see in verse 13. He's in jail because of his ministry to Gentiles, which was quite infuriating to the Jews. 
He doesn't want them to feel undue anguish as Gentiles for his imprisonment. And then Paul has a prayer for them in verses 14 to 21. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, here's another prayer for these Ephesians, which goes down through verse 21, as you saw. In verses 14 and 15, Paul emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world for all time, past and present. Paul briefly deals here with a vital part of Christian living. Notice what he says in the following two verses, verses 16 and 17, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. The power of the Christian life is achieved by the Holy Spirit dwelling within each believer. That's the key to victorious Christian living. Look at my notes on Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25 for more details on that concept. With the power of the Holy Spirit working within, the believer is able to experience the victory and confidence found in verses 18 to 21. Now, don't take too much time trying to break those verses down. It's one very long statement intended to be overwhelming to these Gentiles, these Ephesians, with the sense of power and authority, that which is in Jesus Christ. Notice the key in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus Christ, by the way, is the fullness of God. Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Paul is, in the strongest words possible, emphasizing how comprehensive God's power is within the Spirit-led Christian. That being the case, Paul concludes his prayer by expressing the greatness of Jesus Christ in verse 20 by acknowledging that Jesus Christ, he says, is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And then Paul's equivalent at the end of his prayer to our amen in verse 21. He extends his amen by saying, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's just one more plug for the eternal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. By the way, amen comes from the Greek word amen, which means truly. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walter.